Hi there, welcome to the Good Life Community Church Podcast. It's so good to have you join us for a new year, 2024. We're kicking it off looking at the book of James through the month of January. I hope you enjoy. Alrighty, today uh, we're going to do the last part in our series on the book of James. And I want to thank uh, everyone who's been teaching in this series so far. Um, and if I'm pretty rusty today, it's my first time speaking this year. It's been a while, so um, I need a bit of extra grace. Um, Today, we're going to talk about this whole idea. Um, well, the book of James, we've we, we sort of summarized uh, using a phrase you've probably never heard before in culture, but the phrase is, just do it. I feel like it's got a, it's got a branding edge to it, could go somewhere, but the, um, the book itself is basically not meant to be a complex theological book. It's not meant to be a complicated philosophical um, you know, reasoning, it's really James, actually called Jacob, if you were here in the first week, the brother of Jesus, who's been well-versed in Jesus' teaching, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount and the Torah, the, the, the teaching, the, the original uh, books in the Old Testament, as we call it, and uh, in particular, the Proverbs. And what he's done is he's summarized and pulled together really a book of wisdom to challenge the believers to not just think about their faith, to not just subscribe intellectually to it, but to actually live it out. Because the call to follow Christ and be part of His community as His disciples or His followers is a call to embody and live and breathe the gospel. And there's a lot of challenges in it. And the, the book is broken up into all these little sections that unpack what it means to be faithful, what it means to consider the way we live our lives, what it means to consider others, and to make sure that the systems and structures of this world, the status symbols of this world, the, the category dynamics of who fits where aren't part of how we live that we actually live radically according to the way of Jesus. And today we're going to finish up the series by talking about this idea of being a praying community of healing. A praying community of healing. Next week is our annual kind of Vision Sunday. And it's a chance for us to talk about what's next. It's a chance, chance for us to review what is the anchor or what's the mission and the, the, the consistent focus that we have as a community. But one of the aspects of it is that we want our church as part of the vision of our community to be a praying community of healing. And this text that we're going to look at today unpacks this. The book of James points at the end of the day, if you, if you summarize the five chapters in this book, is this. Love God, love your neighbor. Don't just agree with the idea, do it. That's what it all comes down to. And if you overcomplicate it, there's a chance you'll miss the whole point and you won't actually live it out. You've got to simplify it down to, am I loving God with all my heart, mind, soul and strength? And one of the tests as to whether or not you are will be, are you loving your neighbour? They go together. You can't have one without the other. 
As a matter of fact, part of your worship to God is loving your neighbor. And part of the way that you know if you're loving God is loving your neighbor. And we do that by loving and worshiping and embracing the goodness of who God is and seeing a clear picture, increasingly so, of who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. So that as we worship this beautiful triune God, the Trinity as we call it so often, we actually see the picture of the kind of community that we're meant to be. So we're going to start from James chapter 5, verse 12, and a funny verse to start because in most of your Bibles, there'll be a heading just below it, almost like there's a different section, which you didn't get in the original scripts. Um, this, this is not how people would hear it. They would hear this letter read out to them and they would hear it generally all together. But it seems like this verse is kind of one of the, the former subpoints that James is making throughout the text in the book of James, one of the points of wisdom that he's calling us to to consider how we live our lives. But I, I almost ignored it, but then I kept going back to it as I was studying and reading and researching and thinking, no, 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 this needs to be part of this next section today because it sets us up to think a certain way. So verse 12, it says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Now this week... I was talking to a teenager who was at a new school who was saying, the kids swear a lot at this school. This is not what we're talking about in this verse, all right? Just so you know. We're not talking about the category of what words you think are good or bad or rude. Or, and, I'm, and I'm not saying you should swear, just to be crystal clear. But I'm not telling you, go have the debates about that yourselves. What word you can and can't say? I was talking to someone during the week going, hey, when I was young, we'd get in big trouble for our parents if we said this word. And this guy's saying to me, now my kids say it. And I'm like, now my dad says that word. I'm like, what is going on? You know, like, this is not what we're talking about here. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. In other words, make an oath, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need... To say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Whew, bit of a heavy verse to start off with, isn't it? It's like, ouch. Okay, it's pretty explicit, apparently. But let me just unpack this a little bit. When the words here say above all, it's not saying that this is the most important verse of this whole letter. This is a way that writers in this time would often say, an expression like we might say today in a book, underline this or highlight this. This is really important. So he's not saying all the other stuff isn't as important equally. He's just saying, I want to bring your focus and attention to this. I want to put this in bold. Above all. And what he's trying to say is that an oath in its day and in its culture was a way of kind of heightening uh, our form of communication in confirming the truth of one's words. But what happened was, in this day, you would have people who had different categories of truthfulness. And the way that this would work is, truthfulness could be graded according to the type of oath that was given. As an example, people could swear by Jerusalem or by the temple, and this was regarded as a non-binding oath. Which I'm like, why would you bother? 
hey, Ellie, I'm going to tell you something, and I swear by Jerusalem that the fish really was this big. Like, you're just going to go, okay, so he's lying to me. Like, what's the point of that? Right? But this, this is how people communicated. Um, on the other side, you could swear by the gold of the temple. <laughs> so funny. Or some of the utensils. I swear by the spoon in the temple. Actually, no, I swear by the fork. I swear by the fork used in the temple. Do you know if you said that, that would be a fully binding comment. You would be held account to that so that if you were lying, you could be condemned, okay? And so what happens is you've got other oaths where people would swear by heaven or by earth and Jesus quotes this in, uh, sorry, James quotes this in relationship to what Jesus also said. If you remember in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says the same thing. Bottom line, the point is that James in this text is trying to say to us, don't participate in a system of oaths that's designed to permit half-truths. Be truth-tellers. Otherwise, you're falling under the judgment of God. In, in other words, you live under the blessing of God when you walk in truth, but you're walking against the grain of love and life and goodness and honesty and all that is good when you don't tell the truth. And this is really what he's getting at in this text. Now, some people may say, does that mean we should never do any oath whatsoever? Well, <laughs> the problem with saying you shouldn't do this is because it's kind of hard to explain this because in the New Testament, there are examples of oaths. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, and Hebrews and Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul does it. He, so you're like, what is going on here? What, what's the whole point? The point is, if you go and you have to stand in a court of law and you have to make an oath, you do that. We're not really talking about that. The issue is about your heart and your words and your commitment to actually, if someone in an important scenario asks what happened or what's happening, that you can speak the truth. Now, by that, it doesn't mean you're obligated to tell everyone everything, unless you are, okay? So don't walk up to someone after the service and just say, hey, I've always been curious. I just wanted to know about your life and this particular part of your life. Can you just tell me? And you have to tell me the truth. All right, we're not talking about that. So don't do that to anyone or they'll just walk away on you. And I'll be cheering them on. So here's how I want to summarize this verse. I want to summarize this verse by saying, be real and be honest. Because this sets the groundwork for what we're going to talk about next. When you understand that I don't have to exaggerate, I don't have to understate, I can just say, here's how things are. And this works towards creating healthy relationship and communication. The next verses from verses 13 to 18 go on to basically talk about how to respond to the joys and the pains of life. So we're going to look at this next verse, verse 13. It says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Now, two words we need to talk about in this verse. Number one, the word trouble. This is not talking about you did something wrong and you got in trouble. 
but we are going to ultimately include everything. What this word trouble actually means is suffering, and it doesn't just mean a momentary cough or struggle. It means someone who has some kind of ongoing suffering in which there's no simple solution. It, it, it hasn't been quickly resolved by the doctors. It, it, it's been something, it, it could be anything that fits the categories of mental health related, depression, anxiety. Uh, it may be an, a, an illness that's been around for some time. Or it may be an ongoing pain that you're dealing with in your life that isn't easily going away. And James is saying, if there's anyone among you who's suffering like that, let them pray. And the word pray here, because there's all different words in the original language for prayer, because there are words that describe prayer in terms of supplication, which is requests. There are types of prayer that are lament, which is we, we cry out our, our frustration, our disappointment, our anger, and we see this all through the Psalms. This word prayer here is a general word that in includes all of the different types of prayer that may be appropriate to the dynamic that you find yourself in. In other words, this is a, a verse that encourages us, if we are struggling in any way, let us turn our affections towards the God who is present with us and wants to bring comfort to us in our suffering and our pain. And if it's to pray for God to bring deliverance to a healing or a sickness, then pray it out. If it's a prayer of pain and disappointment and disillusionment, then pray it out. The next verse says to us, is anyone happy? It now flips the script. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Let them sing songs of praise. This is a reminder to us that praise is the antidote to spiritual amnesia. Amnesia is forgetfulness. It's you've had an accident perhaps, you knocked your head and you suffer from amnesia and you cannot remember certain parts of your life. You can't remember certain things. And this is a reminder from James to the people of God to say, hey, if things are going good for you, Give praise to God. Because what happens to a lot of people is they turn to God and they include God when things are going tough. Like, hey, God, I need you in my life now. But when things are going really good, they're like, ah, it's probably because I'm a wise person. It's probably because I worked hard for this. I probably have these joys in my life because I'm a good citizen. You know, like, no. James tells us in the first chapter that everything that we have is good is from God. So we should give praise to Him. And this is an incredibly important habit to build in your life. When something goes good, whether small, like, hey, I just made a friend at school. Or it's, I just got extra financial provision. Or I got a new job opportunity. Or someone helped me out. Or I'm feeling great today. I'm feeling clear-headed. It's an opportunity not to forget God and move on with our own lives and agenda, but to actually pause and to praise God and to say, God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness in my life. Because gratitude is one of the greatest gifts that we give ourselves to actually pause 
And it reminds us in both good times and bad times where our hope lies, and that is with God, our provider. So let's be a people that remember that praise is part of being a healing community. The next thing is, verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and it's anoint, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. This was a common practice that people would do of the day, but the leaders of the community would go to someone. This was not typically someone who could make it to the community gathering. The text infers that this is someone who's unable to get to a gathering where they call on leaders in the community to come to their home or their place and actually put oil on them as a sign and a symbol of being set apart for God's purposes and the acknowledgement of God's Holy Spirit and presence in that moment. The oil is not some magic formula. If you don't have oil, it doesn't mean a person can't get healed. It's a symbol to remind us of God's presence with us. And it says in verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And if, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Whew, gosh, lots going on in these verses. With this small amount of time that we have today, let me say this. First of all, I love the beauty of this text in which someone is in need and they call on a community of servant-hearted leaders to come and minister to them. What a beautiful picture. Secondly, we see here a prayer that's offered in faith. We've got to talk about this for a moment because a prayer offered in faith is not some trick formula or some special pray, prayer that you learned at a conference by a healing evangelist who had a book about it. A prayer offered in faith is quite simply someone whose heart is devoted to the God, the creator of the universe, who's revealed himself in Christ Jesus and has offered to himself to us as a healing, restoring God. And our hope and our trust is in that God. Sometimes when people think about a prayer offered in faith, they're like, oh yeah, wow, I better pray a prayer offered in faith, as if their other prayer wasn't. Now maybe it wasn't because you didn't trust God. Maybe you were trusting in your faith. It's a funny thought. But I have seen and I have witnessed people put more faith into the faith than into God. More faith into the way they pray. For some people, if they pray loud enough, that looks like faith. And if for someone else, if they pray stern enough, oh God, we just really pray. Honestly, I had a guy pray for me when I got first set apart as a pastor. This is no joke. This pastor stood up and said, all right, well, you've been accepted to become a pastor in our denomination. We're going to pray for you now. This is before they did a public thing. And he stands up and he prays and puts his hand on my head and his other hand on my shoulder. And there were some other pastors and they just gently put their hands on my back. It was all cool until about two seconds later when an earthquake happened. And this is how the earthquake happened. This pastor... God bless his heart. He means well. He's actually a really good guy. But I'm like, oh my goodness. He just starts shaking me. Oh God. <laughs> like this. And I'm under there going, and I, I open my eye for it and I see one of the other pastors that I know I'm friends with and he's looking at me going, 
And he just starts praying this prayer. By the end, I needed healing. I was like, oh man, I needed one of those things around my neck. And honestly, the guy, I'm sure, is self-awareness, he didn't know. He did not know. But he, that's, let me tell you, if you're a young person, you watch someone do that, like God bless their heart, they mean well, good intention, all of that. I even, I really like the guy, except for when he prays over me. But you, that's got nothing to do with it. Whatever your personality, when you pray for someone, the prayer of faith is your trust in God. You could say, God, please heal this person in the name of Jesus. Or you could say, oh, Lord Jesus, I just pray, Lord, we just come to you because you're, you're just an amazing God and man, I just got so much praise in my heart for you. Which prayer gets answered more? Does God go, oh, I like the way they prayed that prayer. They're a little bit more enthusiastic. All right, I'll give them the healing. I mean, what kind of weird God would behave like that? Not the God we see revealed in Jesus. So let me free everyone and liberate you this morning because we're going to pray for people today. The power isn't in how you pray. The power is in who we're praying with and in whose presence we put our trusts. Can anyone give me a good amen about that? It's going to get you all a little bit Pentecostal this morning. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now, what happens if the person doesn't get well? So I'm one of these annoying pastors. I got told once by someone, you know what, you shouldn't say some of the stuff you say because it, it takes away faith from people in the, in the gathering. And I went, sorry. I'm just not that kind of, I can't do it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you talk about people not getting healed, then people will think they won't get healed and then they won't get healed. And I'm like, uh-uh. I strongly disagree. I said it nicer than that, but that's not how, it, it's not a game. God's not a cosmic joker up there going, yeah, I don't know. Keep working on it. You can't control when people get healed or don't get healed. All we are is conduits to the fact that we're invited to pray for people in the name of Jesus to see people healed. And we don't know the timing. We don't know how it works. And if it was simple as the prayer offered in faith according to the formula you learned at a conference gets the person healed, and then if they're not healed, then you have to pray harder, longer, more, get more people until you've tipped over a tipping point of enough people praying to go, phew, God, we got God's attention now. Like this is the weird stuff we all get into. You know why? Because we're desperate. We want to see God move. We want to see people healed. I get it. But we're moving into paganism when we operate off that as opposed to genuine, free, liberated faith where we trust in the loving heartbeat of God to do God's work and will in people's lives. And if it was as simple as that, then we have a big problem with Hebrews chapter 11 where we read about people of faith who didn't see the promise happen in their life. And we actually forget about all of the faith preachers throughout the world and over the last decades whose spouses or them themselves died of a sickness while telling everyone else how they can be healed every time. My whole point in this is to say there's tension in this and we can't be a community that ignores when someone's not healed and just say, well, we don't want to focus on that because then people won't have faith. That is messed up. What's beautiful and looks like the gospel of Jesus is we're going to pray every time and we're going to trust in God and we're going to be faithful to that. And we're going to be faithful to anyone who's sick because people do get healed. 
And I don't understand how it all works. And gosh, I wish I did. But our job is to be servant-hearted people of Jesus who faithfully pray with and for people in the name of Jesus to see God's purposes prevail. And whether in this life or in the life to come, we trust healing with God. And that's our responsibility. I just want people to know because I've been a pastor for a pretty long time now and now you, I know you find that hard to believe because of how young I look, but I don't know how to interpret that, but um, here's, here's what I know. I've sat with a lot of people who cried and said, why wasn't my child healed? Why wasn't my brother healed? And they're like, did I not pray enough? Because I heard a story about someone who prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and finally they got the miracle. And I heard a story about, you know, like throwing arrows into the ground. And if you just didn't throw that arrow into the ground one more time, the story of Elijah and Elisha, then you fell just short of your miracle. I'm telling you, that is not the God that we serve. There are answers we will not know in this lifetime. So our responsibility is to be like Jesus and to lovingly love and serve wherever we can. And I just wanted to just... Talk about that this morning. I hope that makes sense. And I just skipped right back to the beginning of all my slides. All right, next point here. Is any among you sick? Whoops, that's, that was the one we just did. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to each other. We're going to do that right now. Would everyone uh, stand up and would you face the person next to you? And whatever you did, we're just, just going to focus on not even the last 24 hours, just the last six hours. Uh, if you could just think of something, confess that to the person next to you. Seriously, imagine we did that. Anyway, um, let's pause that for a second. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be, what's it say? Healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The whole point is this. We are invited to experience God's healing presence and work and restoration in our life. And sometimes we live in our struggle and we're invited to be a safe community that can talk about the ways that we have hurt and offended one another. This confession is most likely intended around sin that breaks community. And so we come to one another and we say, I am sorry, I have sinned against you. I have done the wrong thing. I have been jealous or I've been envious or I, I, I did something that's broken community here. And you know what we do? We don't judge. We don't criticize. What we do is we pray for one another that we may be healed. And it's the prayer of a righteous person. In other words, a person who's living according to God's ways, devoted to the heartbeat of God and Jesus. Their prayer is powerful and effective. The question I want to ask you this morning is, are we a safe community? Because here's what I know for a fact. People don't confess their sins to one another if the people aren't safe that they're confessing to one another. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. Has anyone ever read it? Everyone should read it. It's an amazing book. What's so amazing about that book? Whew, I'll tell you. He tells a story about a prostitute who's telling her horrific story to a, a worker from a Chicago ministry who works with those people who are struggling in life. And when the worker suggests to her 
that she should give church a go. Her response was this, church, why would I ever go there? I was already, I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. This actual story was the story that was the driving force behind Philip Yancey writing the book because he was asking the question why today's prostitutes would run from the church when prostitutes of Jesus' day flocked to be with Jesus. How is it that there is such a big gap between the gospel that drew all the people that didn't fit to Jesus and our much more sanitised gospel and church experiences. There's an old phrase that says, there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. I remember the story in one of the Numa videos by Rob Bell where he tells this classic story about walking into the kitchen and there's one of those drawers that's got all the knick-knack random things you don't know where to put and he opens the drawer and he finds this ball in there and he's like, what's this ball? Where'd this ball come from? And one of his sons says, I don't know, it's the strangest thing. And he's like, you don't know where this ball's from? No, it's the strangest thing. It's like, so no one knows where this ball's from? No, it's the strangest thing. And he, so he tells the story, but his son knows where the ball came from because his son stole the ball. And then the ball ended up in that drawer. And the story in the video goes on that his son realises at a certain point that he's been found out and he runs into another part of the house, up into a bedroom, and he climbs under the sheets of this heavy doona, and he's hiding under there. And by the time his father finds him, he goes in and he sees him, and he can hear this weeping and this crying, and he lifts up the doona, and there's this sweaty, soaking, soaking soggy kid who's beside himself. And it's a beautiful story because the father just holds him and just says... There's nothing you can do that can make me love you any less. There's nothing that you can do that can make me love you anymore. Which is exactly how God is with us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said these words, Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living lies and hypocrisy, it goes on later and says, he who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. Isn't it the saddest thing that that could be the reality in our churches? Because the question is, if we're not safe enough for others to come and they feel that they could tell us what's happening in their lives, they don't want the fear. That's why people don't tell us. They're afraid of judgment. And so the challenge is this. Be the most non-judgmental most approachable, kind, and restorative people imaginable. In other words, be like Jesus. I want to finish by saying this. This whole section of Scripture is really calling us to three things. Number one, be real. Number two, invite God into your reality. And number three, do it communally. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on socials and we'll see you next week.